Herd Heron, who joined the class a few weeks ago, is going to be having an opportunity as he uh, has that. It's going to be this Thursday. Okay, let's look at Psalm 9, shall we? Let's look at the superscription, which is the, the title over Psalm 9. It says, to the chief musician. So these are instructions to the man who basically is going to lead the choir uh, in the tabernacle there in Israel, Jerusalem. It's written by David. It's a psalm, meaning a song. David has written a song that he is wants this choir director to, uh, uh, to teach the choir. And then right in the middle of that title, mine, the translation in my Bible says, to the tune of death of a son. Now some of you may see the Hebrew word right there, the Hebrew phrase, which is muth uh, laban. And uh, that simply, muth means death. And we don't know what Laban means. It could mean son. It could mean champion, the death of a champion. Uh, it could be referring to when David came against Goliath, who was the champion of the Philistines, and it looked like Israel was going to lose the battle, but God intervened, and with one flip of a stone, the champion, the giant, fell, and Israel won the battle. We don't know exactly what this means. We're only not sure. We don't know whether this is the theme of the psalm or whether this is, these are instructions to the choir director, uh, what the tune should be. So it really doesn't give us any information. Okay. Now let's look at this first section. Look at verse 1. David says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now notice that you'll see that there are four I wills there. Do you see that? I will praise, I will tell, I will be glad, I will sing. Notice that verse 1 opens with O Lord and it closes with O Most High God. And so uh, God basically serves as the bracket around these two verses. And that's what this, these verses are about. They focus on God. Uh, praise to God. I will sing, he says. I will praise you, Lord. And then in verse 2, he says, I will sing praise to you. Uh, we have parallelisms here. Now, if you've been with us, you're familiar with parallelism. And the parallelism is that line 1 is repeated with line 2, just using different words, but it means the same thing. Well, look at line 1. I will praise you. Look at this. I will praise you. Look at line 2. I will tell of your marvelous works. Do you see that? I will praise you. Look at line two. I will tell of your marvelous works. This tells us that praise involves telling. Praise involves telling. When he says, I will praise you, he doesn't mean, Lord, I praise you. Oh, Father, I praise you. He's not talking about vertical praise here. Praise here means telling. Look, I will praise you. Look at line two. I will tell of your marvelous works. Who's he going to tell the marvelous works to? He's going to tell the marvelous works of God to the congregation, to the people of God. So he's not talking about vertical praise. He's talking about praising God horizontally amongst the people. I will praise you means I will praise you amongst the people. See? I will tell of your marvelous works. Now look how he is going to praise God. He says, I will praise God with my whole heart. He's going to do it wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly. Uh, he is enthusiastic when he gets up and he gives a testimony of what God has done in his life. So it's a, it's a wholehearted testimony. That's what we should be doing, by the way. 
Uh, the basis for this praise is God's marvelous works. Look at that. All the miraculous things that God has done in the past. And if this is dealing with the death of Goliath, it would be that David threw a stone and suddenly how did God get that stone to hit right between Goliath's eyes? David had five stones, didn't he? I guess he was expecting to use all five. He only used one. How did that happen? That was a miracle. That was a marvelous work. See, And in the past, God has uh, performed great things in David's life and for Israel. Now, I want you to notice that this praise, notice those words, I will, I will, I will, I will, that deals with the future. You see that? If I say I will do something, that means I'm going to do it in the future. If I am doing it, that means I'm doing it what? Now, I did do it, that was in the past. Well, guess what? He says in the future, I will praise you. See? I will praise all your marvelous works. Well, when did God do his marvelous works? Well, that was in the past. But when does the praise take place? That takes place in the future. And so that's very important that you understand that. I will praise your name. I will talk about your character, that you're a God who delivers, so on and so forth. Now look at verse 3. <clears throat> look. When my enemies turn back. See, now we know that this is the problem he's facing. There are enemies that he's facing. When my enemies turn back, that means when God puts them to flight, when they flee in battle, they shall fall and perish because of my swords. Is that what he says? They will fall and they will perish at your presence. So what David is saying that I anticipate praising you. I praise you now for the marvelous things you've done in the past, but I anticipate, this is expectation, I expect to praise you because I'm anticipating that when we fight this battle, my enemies will be put to flight. They shall fall. What do you think that means, to fall in battle? It doesn't mean to stumble, right? We're not talking about walking down the street and to trip over your own feet. This is a fallen battle, and guess what? Perish. So, we have them running, retreating, turning and running at the retreat. David has them on the run. They fall, wounded, they die. But David doesn't take credit for that. He sees that as God. They do that in God's presence. Now he's going to praise that in basis of that anticipation, but he's also going to do it based on what God has done in the past. Look what he says in verse 4. For you have maintained, you see that ED on the end of that? In the past, look, I'm going to praise you in the future for your marvelous work. Uh, he bases praising on the expectation that when his enemies come against them, they're going to fall. And it's going to be God's doing. And he believes that's going to happen based on the past. Because look what he says in verse 4. For you have maintained, meaning in the past, my right and my cause. You didn't side with the enemy. You sat 
on the throne judging in righteousness. So we have this anticipation of praise because the enemies are going to fall and he knows they're going to fall because in the past God stood by David because David has tried to live righteously and do what God wants him to do. So David is confident that this will be the future as well. Now let's look at some of the past acts which God did. Look at verse 5 on David's behalf. You have rebuked the nations. Notice that's an ED. That's what you did in the past. You rebuked the nations. Well, based on that, he knows he's going to do it again in the future, which will lead to David's prayer. You have destroyed the wicked in the past. Well, he'll do it again. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Even their memory has perished. Okay? Now, Israel in the past had gone up against many enemies and they won. Now, I'm not going to train you there, but I'm going to tell you, uh, when you get home this afternoon and you say, ah, what should I do? Should I do the crossword puzzle or what? Golf? Or... I want you to think about Joshua 12. Okay? Because I was looking at that last night. And it gives a whole list of nations that Moses defeated. And then it gives a whole list of nations that Joshua defeated. And I want you to go down and look at those nations and tell me if you remember any of those nations. Most of those nations you never even heard of. Look what he says there in verse 5. In verse five. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. They don't even exist anymore. You can't even remember them. See? And so David knows based on the past that God's going to do it in the future. Now look uh, what else he says in verse uh, 6. Oh, enemy. Destructions are finished forever. In other words, you're doomed. Now his enemy isn't standing in front of him. When he says that, that's sort of a... That in, in, uh, in figures of speech, that's known as an apostrophe. Now in English, apostrophe is when you put one of those little things there, isn't it? But there's a figure of speech called apostrophe, and that's when you're speaking to someone who's not there. Or someone who's dead. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Well, Absalom's dead. And that's a figure of speech in the Hebrew language called an apostrophe. Speaking to someone who's not there. Well, David reflects back on all that God's done, and then he just burst out in verse 6. He says, oh, enemy! He's probably in these rooms doing this, you know? Oh, enemy destructions are finished forever. And that's sort of the conclusion of this uh, thought that David has. Look at verse 7. This is great. Look. Oh, enemy destructions are finished forever. Verse 6. You have destroyed cities. Even their memory is buried. But, look at this. But, the Lord shall endure forever. Now notice in verse 5, the enemy. You have blotted out their name forever. You have blotted God, you have blotted out their name forever. Look at verse 7. But the Lord shall endure forever. You see that? They're doing contrast here. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall administer judgment for the people's in uprightness. So God is going, guess what? 
Those nations are gone and they're forgotten, but God still sits on his throne. That's the basic thing. God's still in control of things. God still judges nations. And God will continue to judge nations. God never changes. That's basically what he's saying. Now, I like that. If you look at that phrase in verse 8, he shall judge the world in righteousness. If you've read the book of Acts lately, you will remember that phrase. That's it. What's it say? He shall judge the world in righteousness. Now let me show you this. I want you to go over to Acts 17. Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. Okay. Acts 17. Now Paul is in Athens, Greece. Remember that? He's waiting for Timothy to arrive and he gets a little bored and he walks around the city and sees all these idols and he gets upset. So he starts preaching against idolatry and all these kinds of things. You see that in Acts 17 and verse 16. It says that he was provoked, the spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given to idols. And then he went out and he preached. And he preached Jesus Christ and he preached the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, some of the people brought him up to Mars Hill where all the philosophers were gathered around. They discussed religious things all the time. But why don't you tell them what you've just told us about this Jesus and the resurrection? So Paul basically preaches the gospel to them. And uh, this is where he preaches about the unknown God. Remember when he did that? And I want you got a statue there that says to the unknown God. Uh, let me talk to you about this unknown God. Let me tell you what his name is, what his son's name is. He preaches the gospel to them. Now look, and then he comes to his conclusion. Okay, and he gives an invitation. Look at this in verse 30. Acts 17.30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. When you, when you talked about an unknown God, you didn't know his name, you were ignorant. Look, God overlooked that in the past. But now, look what God does. He commands all men, all kinds of people, everywhere to repent. Why has he done that? Because he's appointed a day. Now look at this in which he will judge the world in righteousness. You see that? That's a quote from Psalm 9. And then he adds something there. Look what he says. He's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by right raising him from the dead. So, Paul, when he preaches his sermon on Mars Hill, quotes from Psalm 9. Now it wasn't like he just carried a big Old Testament Bible around in his pocket. But guess what? So he didn't say, now let me turn to Psalm 9 and tell you what it says. God commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness. He knew that verse. Think about that. Think about the fact that Paul knew Psalm 9 by heart. And when he stood up, that verse just popped in his mind and he could just rattle it off just like that. Now, what is interesting to me, when he says God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, that sentence starts with the word because there. Do you notice in verse 31? And in verse 30 he says that God now commands all kinds of people everywhere to what? 
repent because he's going to judge the world in righteousness. So when he quotes that verse, guess what he's doing? He's saying God's going to judge the world in righteousness, and because of that, you need to repent. So the application of this verse is you need to repent. Okay? So now when you go back to Psalm 9, and David <coughs> talks about his enemies and how they're going to be blotted out and their names are going to be blotted out forever. And then he says in verse 7, but the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. Guess what he's saying? He's saying, God's going to judge the world. But guess what? You still have time to repent. See? So anytime there's a message of judgment, it also includes an element of mercy in it. It's giving you an opportunity. It's a warning. Say, hey, you need to come back. You need to return to the Lord. You need to repent. And so I see that that's how Paul uses it, and that's probably what David hopes that his enemies will do. Uh, he's not assured that they will do it, but that verse is used there in Acts chapter 17, which is very interesting. Now go back to uh, Psalm 9 and look at verse, verse 9. The Lord will also be a refuge. Now look at that. In verses 7 and 8, he's going to be a judge. See? But in verse 9, the Lord will also be a refuge for the oppressed. A refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you for the Lord, for you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Now, we have two pictures here. We have a picture of God as a judge, and he's going to judge, he's going to judge the oppressors. He will judge the oppressors. But he's also a refuge, a place of safety. He's a refuge for those who are oppressed. So you see two kinds of people, though. Oppressors, they will be judged, and the oppressed, they will be basically rescued. God is a refuge for them. The oppressors oppress because they have power. Anytime you see people who are oppressed, they're oppressed by somebody who has power. Either they have psychological power over those people and they oppress them, like some cult group does. Oppressing people. Or they have physical power over people and they force them to do what they want them to do. The oppressors have power and therefore they don't have to trust God. The oppressed have absolutely no power and the only place they can turn to is God. See, and that's what he says there in verse 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you for you have not forsaken those who seek you. Now notice it's will be. Notice the will in there. The Lord will be. See, it's a future tense. Okay? All future. But in, in the verse 10, look at this. In verse 9, the Lord will be a refuge. That's the future. Beginning of verse 10. For those who know your name will put their trust in you. Is that future? That's future. But look at the end of verse 10. 
For the Lord, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. In the past, has God ever forsaken anybody who seeks you? No. Will he forsake them now in the future? No. See, everything is, the future is always based on the past. David says, I'm confident, Lord, that I will end up praising you and you'll destroy the nations. And here's why I'm confident. Because in the past you've done it. I'm confident, Lord, that you will judge the oppressors, but those who are oppressed, who put their trust in you, you will deliver them because in the past you've never forsaken oppressors. Now notice that phrase in verse 10. And those who know your name, do you see that? Will put their trust in you. Notice. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. Faith is based on knowledge. Who puts their trust in God? Those who what? Know or understand his name. Faith is based on knowledge. You put trust in somebody because you know that that person is trustworthy. So how do I know that person is trustworthy? If they, if buddy says, look, if your car breaks down, come and bring your car to me. And I'm going to do it, and I'm going to trust him. Why don't, am I going to trust him? Because I know Buddy owns a car dealership. See? And he's taken care of thousands of cars over time. Therefore, because I know Buddy, I can trust Buddy. Notice that faith is based on knowledge. Faith and knowledge go hand in hand. But ignorance, listen, ignorance is the mother of unbelief. If you knew who God was, what would you be doing? Trusting Him. Who doesn't trust God? Those who really don't understand God. Those who think that the future is in their own hands. You see? So, that's what David is trying to tell us here. Now, look at the implications for all this. Look at verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord. Look, this is the, these are these are the instruction that David gives to the people. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Now, what does sing praises mean? Here it is. Declare his deeds among the people. Notice again, praises deals with declaration. It's not vertical; it's horizontal. I mean, it's praise the Lord who dwells in Zion. What's Zion? Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? Mm -hmm. And that's where God dwells. See? So he's telling all the people, these are instructions to the people, praise, praises, sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Jerusalem. Declare his deeds among the people. These are songs that are going to be sung within the congregation. Now look at verse 12. When are they to do this? Watch this. When he avenges blood... He remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Now look at this. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Now what does it mean that God avenges blood? To avenge blood means to remember somebody who has died. Okay? Somebody who has died. Uh, they've died for a righteous cause, and God will not forget them. That's what basically David is saying. Remember 
uh, what Genesis says? The blood of Abel, your brother, cries out from the ground. Ah, you thought you could kill Abel and get away with it. Guess what? God's going to avenge the blood of Abel. He hadn't forgotten about Abel. Cain will get his. Because Cain has killed Abel. Does that make sense to you? In uh, the book of Revelation, I don't want to turn you there, but I'm just going to read something to you. Uh, listen to this. John the Revelator sees this, and then he opened the fifth seal. And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, notice they're dead, slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you will judge, now watch this, and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Now, what's happening here? Well, in the book of Revelation, it's talking about people who are being put to death by the Antichrist and the forces of evil. And guess what? It just goes on and on and more are dead. And finally, the people who are now in heaven cry out, Well, Lord, how long is it going to be before you avenge our blood? And God said, I haven't forgotten you. Not long. Now, when you go back to Psalms and you look there at verse 12, you see that same concept right there. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Now, has God forgotten anything so far? Well, yes, he's, for, he's knocked down nations in verse 5 and he's blotted out their name, hasn't he? We see that. Yes, the nations will be forgotten or God will knock them down and he'll just forget about them. But I'll tell you one thing that God won't forget. He will not forget the death of the innocents. He will avenge the blood of those who die innocently. This is why uh, people who are involved in abortions, the abortion doctors and everything, they are in danger, on dangerous ground. Because God will one day avenge the blood of the innocents. Let me tell you something. This is why when a nation goes to war, I don't care if it's America, Great Britain, France, doesn't matter. You're on very, very dangerous ground when you go to war. And here's why. Because in the war, whether you intend to or not, you will kill the innocents. And God will avenge the blood of the innocents. Why war? always, always be the absolute last option. Not the first option. What should be a nation's first option? Yeah, trust God. <laughs> trust God. You say, that must always be the nation's first option. So God will not forget. He for, he'll forget the wicked. He'll do away with them and he won't even have a second thought about them once they perish. But when a righteous innocent person perishes. The humble, those who are oppressed, those who have no power, God never forgets that. Now look at David's prayer in verse 13. He says, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Now this is the first time David actually gives an absolute prayer, what we call prayer in this particular song. Have mercy on me, O Lord, 
consider, which means take notice. Take notice, consider my trouble. Well, where's the trouble coming from? From those who hate me. You, you God, you who lift me up from the gates of death. So David, this the whole psalm comes down to this. That David has a need, and evidently the enemies are against him again. People hate him. They are fighting against him. And if God does not intervene, guess where David's going to be? He's going to be dead. That's why he says, lift me up from the gates of death. David is right. At, he's at the end of his rope. And if God doesn't intervene right now, then David's going to be in trouble. So he says, God, uh, consider my trouble. Uh, take notice of what's going on around here, God. Okay? And lift me up from the gates of death. Now why does he want God to do it? Look at verse 14. You have a purpose there. See that? Starts with the word that. See that? That. Lift me up. That. So that. In order that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughters of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. So the purpose that David wants God to lift him up is so that David can then testify of God's miraculous works to all the people in Jerusalem. Now you see the gates, there are two gates there. Do you notice the gates in verse 13? The gates of death. And then look in verse 14. The gates of Zion. Do you see that? Zion is Jerusalem. Zion is where God is, and where God is, there's life. See? Where God is, there's life. So you have the gates of death, and you have the gates of life. And he says, Lord, raise me up from death. Allow me to live, that I might rejoice in your salvation. Now when you see the word salvation in the verse 14, that doesn't mean going to heaven. Or it just means deliverance. That I might tell the people how you delivered me from the enemies, from the nation. Okay? Now look at verse 15. Here's going to be the means of the judgment upon the nations. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Now, this is very interesting. He's going to tell us how God's going to execute the judgment on the nations. And he's going to execute it by causing them to fall into their own trap. And we saw that a few weeks ago on one of the other songs. They set a trap, and guess what? They get caught in the trap. Elvis used to sing about that, didn't he? Caught in the trap. So they get caught in the trap that they've set. They've got, they get caught in the snare. So the pastor talked about that this morning in Ecclesiastes, the snare. They get caught in the snare, which they set for David and for the nation of Israel. They are going to end up... Uh, being caught in that trap themselves. Now in verse 16 it says, The Lord is known by the judgment He executes. That's how God executes judgment on a nation. They have these great plans. Oh, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to do that. And guess what? They become their own victims. And that's how God used, That's how God executes nations. He doesn't usually send some big fireball down from heaven 
you know, that you say, where did that come from? Well, here it is. Doesn't happen usually that way. He uses natural means. And in this case, that's how God operates. If you want to know what God's like, hey, you get a little bit of God's mind in here. He causes, he executes judgment by causing people to fall into their own traps. So this tells us something about God and the kind of judgment that he executes. Now notice what he says right there at the end of verse 16. Has meditation there, something like that. Now, your Bible have meditation or some word like that? It might have a Hebrew word. It means stop and think about this for a moment. You need to think about what how you need to think about how God executes a nation. He allows them to get into their own trap. Did we go into Vietnam thinking that we were just going to walk in there? You know, Kennedy and Johnson thought they would be out in three weeks. Johnson thought Johnson had a. I'm reading a book right now. It deals with President Johnson. Kennedy's assassination in Johnson. Johnson said, you know, I'm going to put my focus on Vietnam. We only had a thousand people in Vietnam at that time. He said he wanted to make a choice between whether he should go in and try to overthrow Castro in Cuba or whether he should send troops to Vietnam. He said, I'm going to send troops to Vietnam. If you get involved in this Castro thing, you're going to end up bringing the Russians in. And All right, here's what we'll do. We'll go in and we'll, we'll save Vietnam. We'll be out there in three weeks. Caught in the trap. <laughs> Can't get out. Was that a good time in America's history? Remember what was going on there? Remember the riots in the streets? Those of you who were old enough, you wondered whether this country was even going to be, a lot, be standing in 10 years, didn't you? It looked like we were going down the tubes. But meditate on that. Think about that. So this is sort of an interlude. We should just stop right now and have a moment of silence and we should all be thinking about it. Okay. But you think about that. Think about nations and how they operate. Now let's look at the rest of this. Look at verse 17. Sort of the bottom line here. The wicked shall be turned into hell. That's the word in Ecclesiastes. With Sheol, it just means death. Okay? It doesn't mean going into hell after you die. Okay? It just means death. The wicked shall be turned into death and all the nations that forget God. Now look, would you think this song has anything to do about forgetting? Some people forget about God. God forgets about the nations after he judges them, but God doesn't forget the humble. And the humble don't forget God. They have to trust God. So look at this. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and some nations that forget God. Now it says all the nations that forget God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Look at verse 18. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. Now look at that. There's the four forgotten again. Now who will not be forgotten? The needy will not always be forgotten. Who are the needy? Well, the needy are those who can't help themselves. As we'll see, the needy are the poor, the oppressed, the orphans, the widows, those people who are being beaten down. They say, oh Lord, where are you? Lord, do you even know that I exist? Hey, you're not forgotten. The needy will not always be forgotten, as we'll see. The expectation at the end of verse 18 of the poor shall not perish forever. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know if we can... 
Hang on what's left. No, don't worry. It's not going to your expectation will not perish. Hang on there. There's help right around the corner. God's going to remember you. Okay? Now this is very important because the nations are oppressing the poor. The nations, the evil, the wicked oppress the helpless, the orphans, the widows. But God does it. God never forgets those people. And neither should the church. We must never forget those people. God has us there to be his hands and meet the needs of these people. Now look what David says in verse 19. He says, Arise, O Lord. Look at this. Now David, this is David's ultimate prayer. Arise, O Lord. Do not let man prevail. Meaning, men's will. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Now notice that the instruction there is the command in verse 19 is arise, O Lord. Do you see that? But if you look back at verse 4, look what he says. For you've maintained my right and my cause. You sat. Do you see that? You sat on the throne. In verse 7, he prepares a throne. He's sitting on a throne. Guess what David said? Get up! I need help! What are you doing sitting there? You can sit there when you judge the nations. I need help right now. Get up! You ever say, you, say to your kids, hey, don't make me get up. <laughs> you know what that means to arise, don't you? David's saying, I need help. He's crying out. He's in the, Look, David knows if God doesn't intervene right now, if God doesn't get up right now, He's going to face the gates of death. So why he says, get up, lift me up, you know, help me up. See? He's saying, take action. Because if he doesn't, then David's in real trouble. Now, very interestingly, and this is something I just need to say briefly, but it's important. Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 originally were one psalm. There were not two psalms. They were one psalm. Notice at the beginning of Psalm 10, you don't see a superscription there, do you? No. They were connected together. And uh, originally, they were to be read together. Now watch what happens when you read them together. See if it doesn't make sense. Now watch this. Look at verse 19 of Psalm 9. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear of you, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be the men. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Or why do you hide your hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. See back in verse 18, the expectation of the poor. So, verse 2, the wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. You see how all this is the same thing that Psalm 9 said? For the wicked boasts in his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy. He renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud continence does not seek the Lord. But back in verse 10 of the other one, it says the Lord doesn't forsake, forsake those who seek him. You see how all this fits together? You can go all the way down until you see um, about evil people in verse 10 of Psalm 10. So he crouches, he, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. And then verse 11, uh, he has said in his heart, Ah, God's forgotten. He hides his face. Ha ah, ha, he'll never see. Look what David said. 
Arise, O Lord. You see that? O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. And he goes on and on. We'll see. So what we'll do next week is we'll pick up with Psalm 10. Now what I'm going to do in Psalm 10, I'm going to just read through it real quick because most of that is a repeat of Psalm 9. And it just sort of follows up. And then we'll get into uh, Psalm 11. And uh, we'll see that uh, David moves on to a, to a, a little different uh, uh, theme. So we'll pick up there next week. Father, I thank you for uh, our study in Psalms. Help us to do just what David said in the middle of that song. Meditate. Help us to think about these things. Help us to think about this issue of remembering and forgetting. Help us to realize that we're not to forget that you are our refuge. You are an ever-present help in times of trouble. When we don't see you, you see us. You are there. Help us, Lord, knowing your character, to remember you. And help us to know that you remember the humble. Lord, when you gave us the Lord's Supper, you said, do this in remembrance. So, Lord, help us never to uh, lose sight of your presence and your character, that you are trustworthy. Help us to continue to lean on you when there's nowhere else to turn. And help us to realize, Lord, that those with pride and those nations who think they can just take things into their own hands and to bring out, produce an outcome that they desire without looking to you will be crushed. And you'll forget them forever. Oh, Lord, help us to meditate on these things. Help us to think of our own nation and how we treat other people, how we treat the poor, how we treat other nations. Help us to realize our responsibility as Christians to have a prophetic voice and to be compassionate to those who are in need. Lord, help the church be the church. Help us to be your hands and your arms, your legs extended to those that have nowhere else to turn. You use natural means. You cause the wicked to fall into their own traps, and you help the poor through the hands of your servants. So Lord, help us to be those hands. 